0: Technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm a senior writer with HowStuffWorks.com. I talk about all things tech and today we're going to get a little musical with things and uh, get a little help from our buddy Noel. Noel, who is the producer extraordinaire. He's the head of... Uh, of of podcast production here at How Stuff Works, also one of the co-hosts of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. Noel went to Moogfest in 2017 and and got a chance to talk to a whole bunch of really cool people, including Alexander Lurch, and we'll hear more about that a little bit later in this podcast. Moogfest ostensibly is about music and technology, but it actually involves lots of other stuff too not just uh not just those two already broad fields but other ones as well including elements of philosophy and and even uh particle physics we'll have an episode in the near future that will include some elements from uh, uh interviews we had with folks from the large hadron collider so Moogfest has all sorts of really smart talented people getting together and having these incredible symposia and and, and performances. And so Noel was able to go and talk with someone about some really cool stuff. And that kind of ties into what I wanted to chat about today. You know, once upon a time here at How Stuff Works, we had a show called Stuff from the B side. And this was a podcast all about music episodes focused on everything musical, including elements that are more general concepts or philosophical ideas. And music and technology are two things that really do closely tie together. After all, almost every musical instrument is some form of technology, ranging from the relatively primitive versions of certain percussive instruments all the way up to high-tech digital rigs. So I thought it might be cool to revisit music and tech and look at a particular subset of it, musical analysis and music generation. Now, music analysis and technology are also related in that we now have various automated recommendation engines that will suggest music for us to listen to based upon what we've already said we enjoy. Now, these engines look for new pieces of music that in some way match criteria we seem to find appealing. We have indicated to that service that we like that particular type of music. So it starts to try and find matches that kind of following the same lines. As they become more adept at figuring out what qualities we really enjoy, they can hone in on songs that appeal to us, perhaps even changing them up based upon other criteria, such as the time of day or an activity we're doing. So, for example, with Google Music, and this show is not sponsored by Google Music or anything of that nature, but it will detect if I'm on my way somewhere, it might suggest music that would be conducive to a trip. Or if it knows that I'm at the gym, it may suggest music that's good for keeping my heart rate up. Stuff like that. So we'll just imagine a a hypothetical situation. I've just woken up, and the recommendation engine might find some peppy music to get me on my way. So Google Music is saying, hey, it's Monday morning, you need all the help you can get. Here's a radio station based off the song Walking on Sunshine by Katrina and the Waves. And then my phone detects that I'm going to the gym, so then the music engine switches to the songs meant to keep me moving at a particular pace while I desperately try to find the exit to the gym. Uh, I'm sorry, I meant uh, to actually work out. So in that case, it's probably, you know, something with a nice driving beat, a good tempo to it. These are basic things that music engines can do now, but the reason they can do them at all is because of music analysis. This isn't always done in an automated fashion. In fact, Automating music analysis is pretty tricky. Sometimes it relies instead on just a lot of work. And that's work done by real, live human beings. So let's take the Music Genome Project, for example. This is the database that the internet radio service Pandora relies upon when it creates a radio station based off an artist or a song that you've submitted as the seed for a new channel. For more than 10 years, Pandora staff have analyzed and categorized music, breaking down songs into all the basic components, which they call genes. These are the elements that make songs what they are. And I find this approach both fascinating and a little odd. Because it in a way, it seems a little weird to take a really awesome song. Let's say it's "Um, Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper one of the best songs ever written. And then you have to sift it down to all those little basic components, those genes that make up that song. It also reinforces this notion that a song is more than just the sum of all its parts. If you were to look at those components and attempt to make a song that included all of them, I bet it wouldn't be half as awesome as Don't Fear the Reaper. So you take a song, you identify all these different Qualities of it. It may involve things like the tempo of the song, the the uh, the structure of it, as far as verses and choruses are concerned. The uh, whether what kind of vocalists there are, what kind of instruments are used, all of these different individual tiny components of the song, and you put them into say a spreadsheet, and that represents the collection of genes that are possessed by "Don't Fear the Reaper." You take that same collection, you give them to a musician and say, I want you to write me a song that has all of these components in it. Well, again, probably not going to get Don't Fear the Reaper. You'll get something, and maybe it'll be good. Maybe it'll even be better than Don't Fear the Reaper. I doubt it. But yeah, there's there's something magical or apparently magical about music that transcends the quantitative elements that we can list. Now, Pandora's Music Genome Project identifies 450 different musical attributes or genes. They include lots of different types of data. Some of them are relatively straightforward, such as does the song have a vocalist? If it does have a vocalist, is it a male vocalist or a female vocalist? Are there multiple vocalists? Then it starts getting way more granular. So if a song has electric guitar, for example, there might be a subset of information about that, such as how much distortion... ...is on that guitar. Does it have a lot of distortion in this song or not a lot? And so you start to subdivide down the line. Same thing is true for other instruments as well. Now, not all songs have the same number of genes... ...meaning some genres of music are actually easier to describe with fewer terms than others. For example, rock songs have about 150 genes. You can break down your rock song into about 150 different little individual components... Rap songs are more like 350, so that indicates that there are gradations and variations between different songs within the same genre. Uh, So to make a recommendation engine, you first have to put all the music within the library through this process. You need to identify the important qualities that make the music what it is. And you could use something like a spreadsheet and you lay it all out, and then when someone wants to make a new radio station off of a song... You can use that song's genome, all the genes listed for that specific song, to guide a decision engine to pick other songs that are similar to the first one within a certain degree. So you could set this dynamically in your search engine, right? Like, Let's say that you are the one designing the new latest and greatest version of Pandora. And you've got this enormous database of music that's all been analyzed by professionals. We're talking about actual musicians and musicologists who have listened to the music, broken it down into its basic elements, identified all of them. And someone has joined your service and they say, I'm going to make a radio station based off the song uh, The Statue Got Me High by They Might Be Giants. You would end up uh, accessing the database pulling the record for the statue that got me high, looking at all the genes that are associated with that, and then you would look for a certain percentage of similarity with other songs. Like, Are there other songs that have 80% the same genes as this song does? If so, serve it up. See if the person likes it. Uh, You might set the threshold higher or lower. If it's a song that's particularly avant-garde, There may not be a lot of other songs that strongly resemble your original, so you have to kind of play fast and loose with this. Now, an important component of this service is user feedback. Services like Pandora nearly always include a method for users to indicate if they like or don't like a particular song. The recommendation engine uses that data to fine-tune its selections. No two songs are going to be exactly alike. So it may be that the ways the new song deviated from your seed song's format were the parts that made you detest it. So it could have been that the, the, the engine said, well, this song resembles the seed song, the original tune, 80% of the way. Let's serve it up. And you listen to it for like three seconds. You say, no, this is, this is not what I want. And you give it a thumbs down. The algorithm might say, all right, well, I'm going to keep note of where it was the same and where it was different from that original song. Meanwhile, I'll serve up this next song that has 80% similarity. And if you say, yeah, that's a good song. I really like it. And you give it the thumbs up. Then the recommendation engine starts looking at the differences between the song you said no to and the song you said yeah to and it starts to identify stuff that you might not even be aware you don't like it might be certain elements of songs and the recommendation engine has figured it out maybe it's figured out oh uh, Jonathan really doesn't like it when there's a clarinet in the song for no reason but he isn't able to vocalize that he doesn't he's not aware of it consciously But every time it's popping up, he's saying no to that song. So we're going to, we're going to put the kibosh on the clarinet from here on out. That was just a a random example. I, I don't, I don't have a hatred of the clarinet, but it, it is a way for the engine to work with the user in order to get a better understanding of the type of songs that it should serve up to you. Now, there are plenty of other ways to analyze and describe music besides this genetic approach. There are entire courses dedicated to this. Musicology is a rich and interesting field. And some of these approaches go beyond the components that are directly perceptible. These analytic methods try to capture the essence of the feel of music. For example, if you take a bunch of components individually... You might quantitatively describe the music with accuracy, but you can't capture how they collectively create a particular effect. Perceptual analysis attempts to bring human perception and emotional reaction into account with everything else. But why is the music genome project powered by humans? Why is Pandora using actual human beings to listen to music and then write out all these genes? couldn't you find some easier way? Well, listening to music and being able to describe its structure beyond some relatively simple angles is a particularly tricky computational problem. It's something that's easy for humans and hard for machines. In 2005, Wei Chai of MIT wrote a paper titled Automated Analysis of Musical Structure in which she laid out the challenges of creating an automatic approach to analyzing music. Her paper, is 96 pages long, and that kind of gives you an idea of how complicated a problem this is that we're talking about here. Chai's team relied on music cognition, machine learning, and signal processing to segment and analyze pieces of music, with the goal of isolating and analyzing the recurrent structures of a piece, you know, the whole verse-chorus-verse, for all my fellow Pixies fans out there. The Chord progression or key changes that are present in music, uh, identifying parts of a piece that make it representative of the whole. In other words, finding that hook or finding that element of a song that make it stand out. Chai's team had to figure out how to make a machine do stuff that we tend to do naturally, even without the benefit of formal musical training. So, for example, I have never taken any class beyond music appreciation, which is About as 101 as you get. And yet I am able to vocalize certain things about music easily. I can recognize these differences, things that a computer cannot natively do without a, it requires a whole lot of work. The whole paper is available to read online. It's really interesting. I recommend checking it out. Uh, There's a PDF you can just download for free and read over it. And it's fascinating. It delves into not just the programming challenge of creating this analysis software but also the peculiarities of music itself for example what makes one piece of music more memorable than another piece what element does repetition play when it comes to making a masterpiece what is the relationship between music which when you get down to it really is just math and motion and human perception and i could do an entire episode on chai's work and what her team developed and how they set out to design this automated system to analyze music but that's gonna have to wait for a later episode for now it's just important to understand that music is something that we're able to experience on a level that machines just cannot now when we come back from the break we're going to listen in on an interview that noel brown had with alexander lurch and learn more about musical analysis and music generation but first let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, like I said at the top of the show earlier this year in 2017, producer extraordinaire Noel Brown took a trip to Moog which was a—it's you know, a conference about music and technology and science and lots of other awesome stuff and he got to speak with a music analysis expert, Alexander Lurch, and what follows is their conversation.
1: So as a bit of a layman, I interpret a lot of what you do in the field of like generative music. Is that
2: kind of along the right lines? Uh, so um, I would say my work may kind of lead to generative music, uh-huh. but what I'm actually currently focusing on is more analyzing music. Okay. So figuring out what's going on in the music. So um, it it might start with you just have an audio signal and you want to know, okay, what is the tempo? What is the the key? What is the hook line? What is the bass doing? What is the mood um, of this piece of music? And that is where I'm trying to apply artificial intelligence and signal processing methods to get this information, to extract this information from the signal.
1: So I bet that's something like the hit factories in Sweden would be all about, you know, where they're all about, like, it seems they take a very analytical approach to writing pop songs where, you know, they've got people that are experts in hooks, they have people that are experts in verses, and they have all these kind of human algorithms on, like, how long everything needs to play for in order to elicit the proper response. Is it sort of along those lines as well?
2: Yes. So so you, you want to find out... Um what kind of makes a song su- successful mm-hmm. and this might have really many many different factors impacting that right mm-hmm. so there's the structure of course uh, but there's there's so many other dimensions here that it's really hard to nail it down so um mm-hmm. using using the computer to analyze this um we try to find out more about what's going on and maybe identifying these little things that might make uh, something popular or might give you goosebumps or something like that. Can right? you give
1: me an example of something that maybe one wouldn't expect might accomplish something like that, or just like an element that maybe isn't so obvious to the average listener?
2: It's, hmm, okay, let me let me think. Uh, like, it's, it's hard to come up with a very good example that would be surprising to everybody, but... Uh, it, it's definitely the combination of, of tiny things like maybe intonation that is somehow uh, a little bit off, so you would say, or um, timing is a very obvious thing. If something grooves or not, it might have the same rhythm, but it might really impact you on a, com- in a, on a completely different level, right? So these are examples that are maybe not surprising, but but still um, point to that direction. Yeah,
1: is it maybe an element of human? human human interaction Like I mean, when things are too quantized it's maybe less emotional whereas when people enter the notes by hand and they're a little bit imperfect or for example the singer Adele there was an article about how she sort of slides into her notes and that gives you goosebumps because it's got this human quality where you sense that raw human emotion in the same way maybe someone who does electronic music makes mistakes and leaves them in and that's what kind of makes it more um, approachable
2: Absolutely. Um, I mean, one thing you have to keep in mind is that it's all genre and artist-dependent as well, right? So there's there will definitely never be a formula. So if you want to have goosebumps, just do that and then it works, right? So you can always analyze in retrospect, okay, this artist has this specific thing that he or she does and that makes things uh, so so um, fascinating or, or so, uh, that makes you hooked on that. Um, but... Uh, that might not work for a different genre or for a new song, right? Especially because it's also about expectation and what you already know. So um, I can maybe let a computer compose something in Mozart style, right? And it might be a really good Mozart piece, but that doesn't mean it's really gets you as a listener, you know, because you have heard so many Mozart pieces and the original will still be better. It's, it's always an imitation, right? So, so then it might actually miss something there, right? Even if the composition itself is very much like Mozart did it, yeah?
1: So is the end product of your research to make computers better at doing this? Or are you just interested in kind of, you know, breaking down pieces of music into their base elements,
2: so at the moment I'm doing exactly that I'm breaking it down I, I want to be able to uh, let a computer transcribe what's going on in the music, I want to understand maybe on a perceptional level so what makes, what parameters that you can objectively extract from the audio signal um, what impact might they have on the listener right, so, so how does the listener react to certain um, specific um, characteristics uh, of, of the music, but Um, This knowledge is then also can most definitely be used to actually generate new music um, following specific uh, rules that you have extracted from the music and then uh, create something new. And this is what my colleague uh, Gil Weinberg works a lot on. With his uh, uh, robotas that make music.
1: Oh, okay, can you tell me more about that? I know it's not your thing, but just to let, if it's interested.
2: Right. Yeah. So, so there's um, he has a robot called Shimon. Uh, so she's a marimba playing robot. Um, so uh, what? So, so my my colleague is a lot into jazz. So Shimon plays also a lot of jazz. Um, so there's a lot of um, interaction on the stage with uh, live musicians and uh, question and answer games between what, what Shimon plays on the marimba and what the musician uh, then plays. And so it's it's constantly analyzed what's being uh, what's being played, and then uh, the the robot improvises or tries to. Um, give some answers to that well
1: that 's jazz. I mean you have to listen. you yeah. have to be able to follow the leads that your you know fellow musicians are putting out there, otherwise you 're not any good at it
2: exactly. This whole interaction thing is is part of the of the research obviously and it 's not only the music right it 's only uh, it 's also gestures it 's eye contact and so on so that 's why this robot, even if it doesn 't make any sound, has actually a head where where uh, she can look at specific music, musicians. Um, and not her head, and so on. So you see, you kind of can interact with the robot. So this this human robot interaction is part of the research as well. That's
1: fascinating. What can you describe the difference between an algorithm that does what you're talking about, that analyzes music, and one that might create generative music? It seems like there's sort of a crossover between the two, and I'm just I just was hoping you could kind of like spell that out a little bit for us.
2: So. Um, in essence, the, the algorithm that analyzes music is kind of... The information you gain from that algorithm has to feed the generative algorithm. So, for example, you cannot compose something in classical style if you don't know classical style, right? So you have to learn it from data. That is the analysis part. And then you try to infer models from that, right? So you, you have all this data. You have... Uh, you know. Um, You have structural data, you have voice leading, you have maybe intonation if it's about performance, and then you try to fix this data into rules. And these rules then would generate uh, music, for example, jazz, improvisation, or
1: So Brian Eno has has been kind of delving into generative music lately, and it's actually really interesting. There's a BBC documentary of him kind of showing his methods, and he's just using logic, and he has these little kind of nodes, I guess you could call them scripts or whatever, that can set rules for like a drum part or something like that, where it'll say subdivide every other whatever, like any number of things that you could input like that. Um, I guess... Are we at a place where that's still just kind of a gimmick? Or are we we really trying to recreate a human mind creating music? Or is it just kind of a different animal altogether? You know what I mean? Like, I'm wondering, are we really trying to have AI that can compose Mozart or that can replace a producer or replace a songwriter? Or is it just sort of like its own thing that's fascinating in and of itself?
2: So I I don't think that the goal here is to replace... Uh, musicians, but I think it's um, from a research perspective. Um, giving a machine creativity is a really fascinating topic, right? So, is it possible if you just have something uh, algorithm-driven um, that it actually creates something new that it hasn't seen before, right? So, um, I um, I wouldn't be worried about being replaced. Although I mean I could see in the future, like for example, generating elevator music, right? Um, that that I can easily see being automatically generated in the future, um, and there, yes, we, you would actually the AI would actually replace the human composer in that uh, in that area. But I don't I don't think that. Um, I think the, the phenomenon of creativity is still not completely understood. Um, and it's with current technologies, it's, I think it's really hard to get there. I mean, we do use some random, uh, randomizations and so on, so it generates something that you haven't heard before, but, well, it's random, right? So it's not necessarily an act of creativity here. So, so we are trying to get there, but I think it's still a long way to have to create something that is really creative.
1: I guess that's what I'm getting at. Creativity seems to be sort of subjective in and of itself. It's like, does creativity mean that it was created by a human? You know, like, is that exclusively what creativity is? And if we have something that is somewhat sentient, can it be creative? You know.
2: I, I would say that the definition of creativity is mostly subject-based, so there's no... Godlike instance uh, who says okay this is creative and this is not creative but what what it uh, depends on is what the listener sa- thinks of this right um, so uh, which is then in a way makes it really difficult to do research because as there's no clear definition of what we are measuring um, it's, it's all subject-driven. It's really hard to say, okay, this is something where it's going in the right direction, and this is not so much.
1: That's a for right? <laughs> yeah,
2: but I mean, it's so the, the problem is um, current machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms. They all try to, they learn from data, and they essentially always try to reproduce something that they learned from the data, right? While real creativity is always thinking out of the box. I want it
1: to be unexpected Like, Eno uses these algorithms because he wants to surprise himself, but he likes to set certain conditions (laughs) that are appealing to him. It's sort of like being the prime mover in the situation and then just sort of letting the pieces fall where they may in the end of the day. But you are sort of still putting yourself into the equation, but then you are hoping for unexpected results to surprise yourself.
2: And this is definitely uh, one very good way of dealing with that, right? Because you, you have some kind of random components there, um, you don 't trust everything that is being outputted, right so but something might be good, so you generate a lot of variations of of what you might want to achieve, and then you just pick something that that really works and then you um, use this as a starting point from where you want to go uh, to where you want to go.
1: You mentioned elevator music, and I get that for sure, but aren 't they already using generative music in video games where they have to have music constantly playing, and obviously it would take ages for a single person to compose you know, hundreds of hours of music, and I know there are cues in games that are composed, but then there are parts where you're maybe wandering around in, like, the, you know, RPG-type game, and it's sort of ambient music that just seems to morph and change.
2: Right. I mean, this is... But this is rule-based, as far as I know. I'm, I'm far from being an expert in, in what uh, really happens in these game engines, but my understanding is that they, they define specific states, um, and then they have certain rules for either looping something, mm-hmm. looping specific loops, um, or just generating some some more atmospheric uh, background. Tones within a palette yeah. or within like a
1: scale or something that's, right. you know, but, I got you.
2: But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is not necessarily automatically generated. I mean, there might be randomness in there, but I think it's basically rule-based. So somebody during the development uh, specified, okay, in this state, do something like this.
1: How do you think that technology will shape music over the next ten, twenty years? I mean, obviously, we're at a conference festival that is very much involved in the uh, the connection between technology and music. I love it. I think it's amazing. There are some people that it kind of freaks out, but I wonder what you think about like where's it
2: going? Oh well, that's that's obviously very hard to answer. But I mean, just in your opinion, what do you what do you I see? I mean, so and. Okay, let me start historically, right? So, so technology and music, they have always interacted very closely, right? So there's actually genres who would not, uh, uh, which would not be there without uh, the technology, right? I mean, an instrument is technology, right? Exactly. So the electric guitar. Rock and roll wouldn't have happened without the electric guitar. And the electric guitar was, in essence, an engineering effort, right? Uh, synthesizer, obviously. We are here at Moogfest. Um, so, so there was always close uh, interaction between technology. Um, so um, what the trends that I currently see, and, and they are not really surprising, I guess, but I think that um, the interaction of the performer with uh, any kind of sound generation or music generation algorithm will will um, grow more cohesive. So uh, any kind of controller, uh, will be easier to use and and uh, it will also be easier to use for everybody to create music. And this is definitely a trend you already see with DJ apps and so on, uh, where, where they automatically create mashups for you and, and all this stuff. Um, it, uh, this, is, this is definitely going to happen that the user will be, even if they have no uh, music background, will be able to create music uh, in a way that... That makes sense. It might only be loop-based for now, but um, there's uh, a lot of possibilities here. Um, I see all the possibilities in more crowd-based approaches to this, right? So, um, what happens if you put a hundred people into a room and give them, I don't know, an app or something that they can control, and then they make music together?
1: Like a neural network music. Yes, yeah. exactly.
2: So, yeah. And, and uh, there's also, in, in this context, there's new forms how artists can communicate with their fans, right? So mm-hmm. you could release something that is actually interactive. So, so fans could, in the easiest form, could vote on something, but maybe some more complex input would shape the musical outcome there. So I think these are very, very interesting forms where you already see the seeds in, in what's currently happening. Um, and I think this will, will definitely evolve.
0: Noel and Lurch make some great points about the subtleties of music and analysis as well as the potential for their future. And when we come back, we'll talk more about generating music from a computational standpoint. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. Generating music, like musical analysis, is a non-trivial task. How do you program a computer so that it might dynamically create aesthetically pleasing measures of music without becoming too repetitive or boring, or straying too far away from a melody line to sound like anything other than just random series of notes? Now, some music, maybe even a lot of music, is written very deliberately. You know, you're know, you painstakingly sitting down and figuring out What chord comes next? When should you put in the key change? How many times should you repeat the chorus? It's not as if some mythical muse has reached down to touch the musician's brain and create the song fully formed. But there have been attempts by humans to create music from an almost engineering perspective so that it almost, it almost feels like you're taking the artistry out. That's not entirely fair. I don't really believe that is so. But there do, there are some songs out there that were created by committee. And you could argue that some of them perhaps seem to have less merit to them than others. Now, there's some committee design music that is amazing for reasons that are difficult to put into words. For example, in 1997, Dave Soldier, a composer, worked with two artists, uh, Komar and Melamid, to create what they titled The Most Unwanted Song. They conducted a public survey to find out what people most liked and hated in music. And then they created two different songs that incorporated many of those elements. The ones that included the lowest scoring elements became part of the most unwanted song. And it's a song that lasts about 20 minutes. It's incredibly long. It's a song that includes accordion, bagpipes, children's voices, an opera singer rapping, and also incorporated advertising it's gloriously awful and it sounds like this they also did the most wanted music and they created a song that incorporated the elements that the survey takers identified as being the most pleasant components of music the result is something that would likely put kenny g into a coma it's listening so easy you don't even know you're listening it's a shout out to peter shickley right there i actually think that this song is worse than the most unwanted song but take a listen examples illustrate the power of music analysis, as well as how it can easily be misinterpreted or misused, which can create, I think we can all agree, horrific results. But neither of those pieces were actually generated by computers. That was all the work of human beings. Human beings with a wonky sense of humor, but still human. And you might think that the first computer-generated music must have come a decade or so later. I mean, the Unwanted Song and Wanted Song both came out in 97. But no, 1997 was late for computer-generated music. The first actual piece written by computer was the Iliac Suite for String Quartet, created in 1957. This was the work of Lejaren Hiller, a composer, and Leonard Isaacson, a mathematician. And their approach was fairly straightforward. They created a program that would generate pseudo-random integers, which in turn would represent important information with regards to musical composition, such as pitch rhythm, dynamics, and other factors. This processed information would then go through a pass on a filter, and that filter would force the data to follow rules of composition. So it sort out anything that went outside of the rules of composition, and anything that was within the rules would get a pass. And the resulting piece of music for a string quartet sounds a bit experimental, but it doesn't exactly sound mechanical. It sounds kind of like this. <laughs> Other experiments in music generation followed, but they all depended pretty heavily on computers working within relatively strict sets of rules with a good deal of human guidance along the way. And of course, the computers had no actual understanding of music. You could program in rules for different musical genres, and computers can do that. That's what computers do. They're really good at following rules. But the machines have no way of knowing why those rules exist or what sort of effect those rules have on the music itself. Computer scientists have created some interesting experiments to build music generators. For example, Matt Vitelli and Erin Nayebi uh, built software that analyzed a piece of music by Medeon, a uh, French DJ. or Medeon, I suppose. I apologize. My Francais is uh, not very good. The software analyzed Medean's work and then attempted to replicate it. It used recurrent neural networks in an attempt to capture the essence of the music and make something similar. The neural network learned with every iteration of music uh, and learned how to more closely mimic the style. So when it first started, it sounded like pure noise. It took 2,000 iterations before it generated something that resembled a song more than noise. But it shows that these learning algorithms are able to start focusing on what those elements are that represent meaningful information versus meaningless information. So would this eventually be able to create its own music if you were to, say, set it to listening to a radio station for long enough? Who's to say? Over at Google, the Brain Team is working on a ton of different projects related to machine learning and artificial intelligence, including exploring opportunities for computer-generated music. This falls under something called the Magenta Project. And the project has two purposes. The first is to experiment with machines creating different forms of art automatically, including music. The second purpose is to foster a community of artists and programmers to find new and interesting ways to use this technology that Google has created. On the official page for Magenta, Douglas Eck points out that artists have always found innovative ways to put technology to use beyond what the creators had in mind, and that's where true innovation lies. So in other words, when you create an electric guitar for the first time, you're probably not anticipating the way Jimi Hendrix is going to play that decades later. So artists have been able to take things that people have created and move it beyond even the creator's expectations. That's kind of what they're hoping over at the Magenta Project. Eck goes on to point out that short-form machine-generated music can be quite effective, and it's been around for a while. There are generators out there that can make short songs, essentially, or short pieces of music. Uh, but if you increase the duration requirement, if you require the, the music to last longer, you start running into the limitations of the technology. They start to become more apparent. And it becomes clear that machines aren't really good at sustaining a long-term narrative in any format. The Magenta project isn't just a single approach. It's not like a group of folks who are just working on one set of algorithms Think of it more like a platform or a list of assets, a list of, of available uh, uh, bits and pieces other people can use, and programmers and musicians can build tools out of those pieces for generating music. Now, some of those tools may end up being way more effective than other tools, Just figuring out how to evaluate the abilities of the software could end up becoming a challenge. How can you tell if one autonomous music generator is, quote unquote, better than another one? Music is pretty subjective. And what I might like might not be what you like. And there are some qualitative elements that we can look at that are pretty difficult to to get a conversation going, because if you have a very different set of of uh, pros and cons or, or set of, of preferences, I should say, about music than I do, then we might hit a wall. But there's some quantitative elements, such as the amount of variation in a piece and whether the music generated fits whatever genre you were aiming for that you can use. Those that's a little bit easier because it's a quantitative or more or less a quantitative element. But pretty soon you get into more subjective territory and that's where it all breaks down. At the moment, machines are better at interpreting and combining musical pieces than they are at creating something entirely new. For example, David Cope, who is a professor emeritus at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and he's also a composer, launched a project called Experiments in Musical Intelligence many years ago and used a computer program to analyze various classical composers' musical work. Then the program would construct new pieces, using the elements it had analyzed as building blocks for that piece. So the program wasn't really writing something entirely new, but rather combining found elements in new ways. Now, perhaps in the future, machines will be able to make art on their own with minimal human input. And if that happens, we'll likely have to face some tough philosophical questions about the nature of art. If a machine doesn't possess self-awareness or consciousness and really is just a complicated set of equations that generate data according to some general rules, is its production actually art? Is intent required for it to be art? Does the artist have to intend something in order for it to be art? If people enjoy the work and find it intellectually or emotionally stimulating, does that make it real music? If if I like something and I find out later on that a computer generated it completely from start to finish, does that at all lessen the value of that music? Or does the fact that I like it mean that it's quote-unquote real? We're not at a stage right now where those questions need urgent answers, but I do think they're really interesting. And now it's time that we play our own music and get the heck out of here. So if you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, write to me. Let me know what you think. Our email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop me a line on Twitter or Facebook. The handle for the show at both of those is h s w. On Wednesdays and Fridays, I record in the studio. And you can watch me live on twitch.tv slash techstuff. Watch as I struggle for words and fail and then head desk and then tell Dylan to pause the recording so I can come up with something and then start the recording again. You get to see the whole thing. So all the stuff that gets cut out of the podcasts, you can watch it happen live. Sometimes I dance. Hope to see you Wednesdays and Fridays at twitch.tv slash techstuff. And I'll talk to you again really soon.